0: Welcome, Mamas. Welcome back to another episode of the Working Mama podcast. Today, I have with me Sarah Purvey, who is a clinical psychologist, practice owner of Eastern Shore Psychology, and also the author of Keep Sane and Parent On, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more today. Positive birth program facilitator and mother to six-year-old and four-year-old girls. She helps parents prioritise their mental health and look after themselves through the challenges and joys of parenting, and also help mothers heal from past birth trauma and prepare for positive birth experiences. She supports many parents at her clinic and offers support via her first book, Keep Sane and Parent On, and oh wow, she's about to soon be launching an online support group. She also provides trauma therapy to a wide range of adults presenting with post-traumatic stress disorder or complex trauma. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. How's your day going so far?
1: Uh, Pretty good, actually. I'm just in the clinic today and have just been um, supervising one of my psychologists and just doing all the bits and bobs that it takes to, to run the practice today. And doing things like this with you as well, podcasts or interviews or meetings.
0: Very, very good. Mm-hmm. Well, you've definitely, from your CV, and that's only the, the very shortened version of it, you've definitely had already quite a, a full career and, and all that. How would you best describe yourself? Uh,
1: career-wise or personally or all of it's the above? both. Yeah, I guess... For for me as a person and uh, and me as a psychologist, I kind of wrap that wrap that up into who I am, kind of as a person as well. Like psychology is definitely part of of who I am and my focus in life. I've always been, I guess, an avid learner and uh, study. I like to study a lot. I've always done that, like as a kid. Like I was a bit of a, a book nerd and always wanting to to learn. I guess about things, and I've continued. To do that through my life, I always feel like I have to have projects on the go, So, which is part of the reason of writing a book and part of the reason, I guess, why I started a private practice. I've always liked to continually challenge myself and, and do more things and, and also with being a parent, I've found that that's a uh, considerable learning curve, as I'm sure you can relate to and as most parents could relate to. Is that there's so much to learn and you and you just keep learning. Like the, the gifts never keep never stop coming in terms of the lessons that we learn as parents. So that's why I have such a focus on that in my psychology now. Is there's there's just so much to be learning about ourselves and, and about our children. And I like to be able to offer that to, to people as well, like offering my knowledge and just helping other people to to heal and and grow. And that's been a big focus of my life as well is just really focusing on others to to help them be the best versions of themselves too.
0: That sounds Mm. pretty amazing. And so what's been your journey to where you are today career-wise?
1: Well, career-wise, I started off quite differently actually. Like my, my first job was actually working in the Hobart Risdon Prison so I had quite a forensic psychology approach, but I've all again I was always motivated motivated by by helping people and and really kind of starting at the the most disadvantaged that can possibly be, basically like which was where I was in that prison setting. So in, and in that role, I helped to manage suicide and self harm risk in the prison and, and challenging behaviours. So that was definitely a a big learning curve for me, and I pretty much found that everything that I'd learned at university wasn't very useful in my role as a psychologist so yeah, The prison pretty,
0: much, pretty amazing. Okay,
1: what now? <laughs> that's worked, so better try yep. something else. So um, so that was great, like it was really a fascinating place to, to work and definitely challenged me and has actually given me a really good platform for just my continued learning as a psychologist to be, I guess, always open to to challenge and and growth and not thinking that you know it all, basically. Uh, So it's still been useful, even though it's quite different to the work that I do now. And then I moved on to the adult community mental health team, which is a, a public health team. And I worked there in rural areas and disadvantaged communities around Southern Hobart. And helped people with a range of complex mental health conditions. Uh, lots of trauma work that I did there, and lots of work with anxiety, severe anxiety disorders. Lots of home visits for people that couldn't leave their homes. Uh, so very much on the very severe end of, of anxiety, and and helping through helping people kind of manage that and and come out of their homes and obviously heal from their anxiety issues. So very complex work, and then I. Did some work in private practice. Um, I started to do some private practice work in that particular location where I was at for community mental health too, but I worked in one of the medical practices there. Because I found that I didn't have as much freedom as I would have liked in my clinical practice. So that was one of the things that particularly led me into private practices. I want to be able to help more people. And I felt when I can do what I want to do, I get to help more people as opposed to the systems that can go on in in big health departments and government departments. So that's what led me on that journey. And then eventually I had my first child in 2013. And then that launched me into the world of birth too, particularly. So I was quite focused on, on how I could have the best well, the best birth experience that I could to to help my partner and I go into the the postnatal period in as positive a way that that we possibly could. So, I've definitely invested a lot of energy in in what that looks like, and that led me into being a, a hypnobirthing Australia practitioner and and developing my skills in in that particular area to help people to have positive birth experiences. And that particularly worked well for us. And obviously um, there's been a lot of positive influence that that's had for, for many couples. And then I had my second child in 2016. And then I decided to go into, fully into private practice at, when my youngest was 10 months old. And my um, partner actually wanted to take a step back from the work that he was doing and he decided to become a stay-at-home dad. That's what he wanted to do, and and I was like, okay, bye. I'm going to work in the private practice.
0: this is why you have to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> because parenting two two young children was not without challenge, uh, and I really missed the psychology work that I was doing. I wasn't doing as much as what I would have liked. I was doing um, at that point I wasn't doing anything I'd been out of work for in the in the parenting role for a full 12 months without work and I, I just really missed it like I, I just I just can't not work as well like I just find that part of my life so enriching and, and important and, and a part of my identity so I kind of really felt that work was just so important for me to be the parent that I wanted to be think that's so important is that when we lose parts of our identity or we're not doing the things that really truly I guess fill our cup or or give us meaning and purpose then it's hard for us to be the parent that we really want to be to be as connected with our children as we can so that was what I was able to do and it's fortuitous I guess that the timing was right I guess for my husband to to want to do that and for me then to to launch into a a bigger role of developing a practice and the practice is kind of built just over time it's obviously not something just that happens immediately it's just been work in progress that has really
0: naturally evolved over the last few years oh that's fantastic and i think that's also great that there's a there's multiple stories and multiple ways that we could go from from that response is that also hearing about stay-at-home dads because we don't actually hear a lot in society of fathers actually putting up their hands of saying yeah i actually want to take a step back and also that's okay and um i think that's that's really admirable and we it's about also sharing those stories that you know husbands and fathers do actually want to be that stay-at-home and primary caregiver for the children
1: that's right exactly I think the statistics are something like three percent of fathers are stay-at-home dads in Australia so it's certainly still by far the exception to the rule and obviously it's not you know it's not without challenge but it's it's really nice for him to be able to really be in that role and I really kind of see for us that there's a there's um, a lot of the things that I hear mothers say about the the challenges that they're in in their partnerships and their partner's not kind of really seeing what actually happens. Like my partner totally gets what it's like, obviously. And I totally get what it's like because we've both been there. So we both 100% know how challenging it is. So we're both entirely on the same page of, it's, it's not like I go to work and, oh, I'm the breadwinner and, you know, so I don't have to do anything. Like I, I come home and I'm like, you know, well, go and put your feet up or take the dogs for a walk because I know that you you need to have a break because you've had the whole day with the kids or whatever. So we, we definitely juggle things a lot better in that regard, but still not without challenge.
0: Yeah, no, I think everyone it's definitely relatable. And I think also about the identity of you know, just because you're just you know, a lot of people say, Oh, you're just a mum. You're like, Well, no, I've I'm a mum, but I've still got an identity and I still want to work. Uh, and I've like, I experienced that as work as well about returning to the workplace of oh, but you're a mum and I'm like, mm. Yeah, but my husband's a dad and he still goes to work and I've still got an identity as in my job and, and what I do and I actually still want that and I'm the same as you. I'm a much better mum by working.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important, isn't it? Like when that's what you've done for the best part of your life, I would imagine, to suddenly just park that for however long, like it, it just doesn't work really no. like when that's what your focus has been. And it doesn't mean that you can hmm. I think it's really important for kids to be able to sort of see that as well that their their mums are more than just mums that their their mums are you know go to work and their mums have a social life and their mum loves to bushwalk or you know there's there's a whole different series of roles that we can have and we can both have them both sexes can have that
0: yeah it's not mm-hmm. one or the other it's not one or the other it's um definitely about I think also redefining what balance is but that's also definitely something that we can also uh, touch on. But really what we wanted to talk about today um, was around the topic of anxiety. And when I put this topic out on social media across the Working Mama Instagram community and also um, in the closed Facebook group, I asked people, what what questions would you have? And I was really surprising how many people actually came back to me on this topic, which it really showed how important anxiety is and also how many people experience it in varying levels. And so I know that the term anxiety is used quite often, and particularly at the moment with COVID. Are you able to explain what it is? um, So people, and I don't mean to, so people could put themselves in a box, but also just conceptually understand it and be aware of some of those emotions as well. So we can identify if we're experiencing it at that time.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. I guess I'll just explain what the physiological response is with anxiety. I always liked to really get clear for people on explaining that so that people have a really good understanding of why their body might be behaving in a certain way when we're anxious. And anxiety is really an alarm system that's in our body and our brain. So it's just telling us something that something bad might be about to happen. So it's actually a really normal function of our brain. And that's what I like to get across as well. Like it's a normal physiological function of our brain to tell us when the bad things are happening. So it really helps us in life-threatening situations and it helps us to problem-solve challenging situations. So we need it it's important like we can't exist without it that's the reason why humans have have evolved to the point where we are now if we didn't have this alarm system or this threat system in our brain then we literally wouldn't be here uh, because we wouldn't know how to problem solve or, or save ourselves like in difficult situations so but it becomes a problem when your alarm system is overactive. So say you're actually in a life-threatening situation, so perhaps you're walking across the road and all of a sudden you, you hear and, and then see a car hurtling down the street and it isn't slowing down when you're crossing the road, your alarm system will be triggered and um, your heart rate will speed up and your breath will speed up to put oxygen into your blood, to make your blood move into your arms and legs, to make your arms and legs have more energy to run across that road. So the fight or flight response. So that's good because you don't need to think about that. Your body just does that for you to save your life. And that's why anxiety, like when we're not in a life-threatening situation, your brain can perceive it As being a threatening situation. So you you might just be worried about, um, you know, I guess how you're going to perform in a work meeting the next day, like when you haven't had any sleep. Like that might be something that your brain is perceiving as being, you know, a threatening situation. Not life-threatening, but not comfortable. And then that can give us uh, a feeling of anxiety. So you can get those similar feelings, the symptoms of an increased heart rate or perhaps just not feeling well or butterflies in the tummy because there's actually a shift of blood that moves when we feel anxious, that blood's moving away from the middle of the body, which gives us uncomfortable physical sensations. So so anxiety is literally a physical response that happens in our body. So we get physical symptoms and then we get uh, thought processes like our our thoughts race that we can find it hard to switch our brain off. Uh, We might have a lot of nervous energy that makes it really hard to sit still uh, so not being able to you know, sit down and watch Netflix, you might, you might kind of want to feel like you need to move around the house and, and clean the house or not being able to get to sleep uh, might be an issue because the brain is just ticking over the stuff of of what needs to happen the next day. So I guess like when, when we see markers of things like persistently not being able to get to sleep at night, um, you know, a one-off or, you know, maybe even once a week, it might not be so bad, if, but if someone's consistently not sleeping, then that's that's usually a good marker of maybe just needing to do something about that, getting a little bit of support or assistance. Um, also, not eating, like if, so, if someone is consistently just not not feeling like eating meals during the day, or or also the opposite, if someone feels like they're persistently, like consistently, putting on weight. Um, because they're eating too much or they're binge eating to to managing feelings, that might also be a marker of needing some help. But a a little bit of anxiety, I guess, that that we feel that we can easily manage by talking to a friend or talking to a partner or or family member um, or being able to do a little bit of meditation or a little bit of exercise, I'd say that's probably quite normal. Uh, But it's when it starts to affect our everyday life and it's not really going away of its own accord, then that's when it sort of becomes more of a problem, I'd say.
0: And what can we do in those situations um, where we know that we we might be getting not enough sleep and particularly as well as new mothers, there's not (laughs) probably sleep at times as well. Um, What are some of those triggers? Like if we recognize those markers and we're saying, "Look, this isn't normal. What can we then do as a next step? I guess
1: seeking some support, like, is probably always a good place to start, and looking at your own support networks first. So perhaps just speaking to a friend who is a real, just any friend that you kind of feel like you can speak clearly and well to. Um, that's usually a good place to start, or or a family member or a partner. And because sometimes just getting the feelings off our chest is, is a bit of a starting point. But making sure that there is a bit of time that's set aside to be away from your children, like is really important. I mean, it's usually what I see for mums that are coming to me that are struggling. They're very rarely are they doing anything for themselves at all. Like, so that's usually a place to start. I see, like when people start to feel anxious or irritable or flat, they're literally not doing anything for themselves. So I find that that's really important is trying to carve out those, at least um, having some time like in the week where they're getting out for an hour or even trying to find small pockets of time during the day, even if it's just 10 minutes of listening to a meditation app, uh, you know, before they go to bed or just shutting the door um, and hiding away for five minutes and doing a meditation app, like once partner comes home or leaving the house for half an hour to just go for a walk around the block, things like that, consistently taking that time out to yourself. Because often just that that time away from children is just enough to reset the brain and take it out of that fight or flight response really so we can see things in a more logical Way, so time alone is definitely important. Uh, seeking some things outside of the parenting life, I guess again the identity part is really important, um, and yeah, learning how to do meditation. So the, there's some really good apps around, like the Insight Timer is always a really good app. I find like it's got about twenty five thousand different meditations on there, so there's something to to suit however you you're feeling and consistently doing something like that so not just doing it as a one off when you feel bad it's actually making a consistent effort to to giving yourself that time to pause and also just seeking potentially seeking professional support if none of that works I guess like if, if someone's not finding a change then don't be afraid to reach out for some professional support because it doesn't necessarily have to be much it might just be two or three sessions with a psychologist might be enough to to help someone to reset so it's really important not to see that as a a failure or a breaking point or you have to be at the end of the line before you can get to that point before you get to that point it can just be something where you just need to to get it off your chest and and do that in a non-judgmental space and get a few different tips or strategies that's a really important way to see a mental health professional I think is that we're just keeping ourselves running
0: yeah, I think definitely seeing someone mm. is so important, and it's not to be seen as a weakness, but it's actually a strength. Mm. Um, Absolutely. I, I saw someone a couple of months ago um, for um, a personal topic, and it—I only needed one session, but it actually gave me a validation of, "Yep, I'm managing that way in a set in a particular way. I'm completely normal, and I'm not crazy." Like not. Like crazy, but yeah. I wasn't off track as what I thought I was. Um, and so I have anyone now, I would actually say, go see if it's such a strength um, and you will walk away with so much more yeah. validation. Because I thought before, oh, do I really need to see someone? Maybe it's a bit of a weakness. And it was actually my sister that said to me, no, Karina, go see someone. Mm-hmm. Trust me, you will be better off for it. And 100%. I, so now anyone listening, go see someone professionally. It's not a weakness. It is by far a strength and it'll be one of the best things you will walk away doing.
1: Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's really good to hear your perspective in that regard. Obviously, I think that and, and I can vouch for that in terms of the things that my clients know so important. Like, that you, don't, you don't have to fix your own problem. Like, you know, if we have consistent headaches or something like that, we'd probably go to our GP and say, look, is there anything like up with the GP just to make sure like, you don't have to fix your own problem. Like, so if you go to a psychologist for something that's an emotional issue, you can just get that, you know, just that bit of a pep talk, I suppose, or that opportunity to to know that you're on the right track and that's exactly what psychologists are, are there for. We And I, I often think of our brains i guess or our our mental health is being a bit like running a car like you don't wait until your car has not been serviced and the engine's about to break down like we should be running our car and consistently getting services on our car and you know maybe putting premium fuel in it and and washing it regularly things like that to keep it in um in good form rather than waiting for for everything to just fall apart and then do the the uh, full engine repair then. So don't do that with your own body. Don't wait until you're completely falling apart before you seek the support.
0: Yeah, and I often say mm. as well, uh, I love what you're saying about self-care because I often say, it's, you know, you can't fill from an empty cup. So, and particularly as a mum, we're, we're always giving so much both emotionally as physically to particularly our children and our, and our immediate family and that we don't sometimes reflect and go, oh actually I need to stop and do something for myself is what you were saying of take Mm -hmm. that moment go for a walk and also not be guilty that you're actually taking a little bit of time for yourself because when you think about it there's 24 hours in a day and you're generally giving a lot of that to other people and so just by giving yourself Mm -hmm. that uh, acceptance and that validation that you need to fill yourself up Um, with something that makes you feel good and also have that mental break is so important. Uh, And also recently I was reflecting Mm -hmm. that we will take a sick day if we feel physically sick, but sometimes we might feel a bit like mentally just drained, but we don't take those days as sick days, which I'm like, we really need to take more mental health days and probably also have that written into contracts. Because I think if you just take a day off work just to get yourself mentally right you're so much better for not only yourself but also the people around you. Mm,
1: absolutely, yeah. I think there's definitely good evidence to support that, and I'm sure some of the Scandinavian countries are, are happy to implement that sort of thing with mental health days. And with some prisoners, they do incorporate that sort of thing into the contracts because if you, I mean, how are you supposed to work really? It's, it's a good thing, definitely, to take that time out emotionally.
0: Yeah. And I know a lot of people are experiencing anxiety because of COVID and, and that lack of control with isolation. Like I'm based in Melbourne and we're back in the middle of lockdown again. And this is a prospect that we're being dealt with until really they say they're finding a vaccine for COVID nineteen. During these little, you know, ups and downs throughout this virus um, and this pandemic. What can we do to manage some of those anxiety levels? Is it, as you say, about the self-care and making sure we're getting it out and walking or meditating and using some of those techniques?
1: Yes, I think it is. It is really increasing the dosage and the frequency of self-care, I like to say, that in these times, it's, it's obviously unprecedented. Like you, the human race has never gone through COVID-19 before. So it's really you know, normal that we're going to experience feelings of anxiety or a lack of control because it is like it's out of our control. Like in, and that's one of the things that is a real trigger for anxiety is a sense of being out of control and not being able to tolerate uncertainty. And, and there's a whole heap of uncertainty that's going on with COVID-19. We don't really know what's going to happen, so it is just so important to really amp up the things that we need to do to look after ourselves, and particularly drop the expectations around like what we think that we, you know, should be doing. Like with all of this extra time that we have, yes, <laughs> uh, let's invest it into personal growth and looking after ourselves because it's it's anxiety provoking to be to be at home like this and to have all this extra time and to not really know what's going to happen so yeah we should be exercising or walking or just being outside is really important um but getting our vitamin d and things like that so just getting whatever sunshine that there is in the in the winter in australia and Yes, meditation, listening to meditation and turning off the too much through social media and if you're monitoring what's actually causing any increases in anxiety, I guess if you if you notice that you are watching the news and it's really triggering you um, and triggering this uncertainty or it can trigger this increased lack of control, then you probably just need to turn it off for a while and, and duck out of it And only kind of listen to to what you need to listen to in terms of, I guess, whether restrictions are easing or changing or that sort of thing, but really trying not to spend too much time on that. And again, support, you know, seeking the support like from, from loved ones or friends is communicating as much as you can. Yeah, and just taking it easy, dropping the expectations on yourself. I think, you know, even more, we need to drop the expectations even more. in in this sort of time of needing to be isolating in Victoria, at least.
0: Yes, very much so. Actually, I read an article, I think it was last week, by someone saying, don't do that sourdough that you thought that you should be doing, but actually take some time, particularly during this six-week lockdown, about just just relax, take a load off, because it has been a pretty full-on year, and it is okay to stop and relax. And it was interesting, this article was giving that permission that you don't have to do... A million things you don't have to learn a new skill or anything like that it's okay to just chill
1: Mm, absolutely because it's not time off like it's not six weeks of holiday like where you just get to put your feet up like it's six weeks of a of a pandemic um so that that means you can just you're literally supposed to be at home and you should just be taking that event that opportunity to to do whatever it is that you need to do to get through the day. And it doesn't have to be learning rainy. And skills. as we know with
0: young kids, that can also be heightened stress rather than less stress. So particularly if it's raining out outside like we had over yeah, the weekend, so absolutely. yeah. Yeah, it's so hard for parents, yeah. We'll shift gears a little bit. Uh, and working mums, when they're returning back to work, do face another level of heightened anxiety, Uh, particularly as well around leaving their little ones for the first time for an extended period of time. What tips and hints um, do you have for women returning back to the workforce? And what is some of those underlying causes for those emotions to to present? Uh, I know that I experienced it and I thought, no, I'm mentally pretty prepared and pretty ready to go back to work. But I did have some of those mum guilt, moments on the way to work for that first few days of,
1: am I doing the right
0: thing? Is my son going to be okay? And just working through some of those emotions. And I know that a lot of women do actually experience some form of mum guilt, anxiety about that return to work. And sometimes it's no matter how many kids they've got, they experience those feelings.
1: Mm, That's right. It can be new each time another child is born. And you know, I guess returning to work after you've had a baby, it's not been done before. Like every time that you do it, like that that period is has always changed, if that makes sense. So whether you've been a first-time mum and you've been at home with your child for however long, its it's a separation that's happening that's never been done on this level before. So it's new. Uh, and there 's a sense of uncertainty about it you don 't know what is going to happen, and again like that 's what 's at the core of anxiety is uncertainty and not being able to to know what 's exactly going to happen and then there's also this other layer of you're not you 're not there to to see what 's actually happening to your child like you you 're giving a giving child over to someone else, so you kind of have to let go of that role of being uh, the, the caregiver, you need to put the, the caregiving role into someone else's hands so that become, that's out of your control then, which is another marker of anxiety is when things are out of our control. And as a parent, things being out of our control, that can be a, a very big thing to get used to. And that's, that's what happens, I guess, when we go back to work. It's a real letting go of control that happens because there's nothing that you can do like once you're at work. And then it can give a lot of fodder for the brain to to wander into places of, you know, what if they don't cope or what if Nan doesn't know how to put them down for a nap or what if they don't have a sleep at childcare or all those different things. It's just lots and lots of things that the brain can tick over. And I guess it's about trying to uh, prepare yourself as best you can. So doing short periods of time before you step back into the, to the role of completely going back into work three or four days a week. Like if you can, prepping by letting your child, you know, be away from you for half the day first and just seeing what happens. So I guess most child cares have that sort of orientation where you can leave your child for, for half the day. And that is usually a pretty good indication that your child's going to be fine. You know, most of the time, you know, children get used to that fairly quickly, but just trying to do things in small doses first. So before you really go back into work is just doing the, the preparation of doing the childcare runs or, or having the the nan or whoever's looking after your child for a short period of time first. And I mean, most of the time, the things that we worry about just don't come true. I mean, most of the time we overestimate the negative and and underestimate our capacity to cope with it. So, and that's at the core of what anxiety is, is as well. Like we think the worst case scenario and we just think we won't be able to cope with it either. But most of the time, the negative thing doesn't happen and most of the time we can cope with it no matter what happens. So, trying to be as prepared, organized as you can, but also just even creating a little mantra for you. Um, I often say like having little affirmations like on the the wallpaper of your phone. So just having the words, I can handle this, or, you know, I can do this or what's the worst thing that can happen Uh, or little sticky notes around the, the house, things like that to just constantly remind yourself that, you know, I can do this. It'll be okay. Um, or it's not the worst thing that's ever happened before. And you just have to do it, I guess, you know, just do it as well. Like uh,
0: <laughs> yep. that old of Nike
1: phrase. Yeah. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> just do yeah. it. But I think it's really, as, yeah, as you say, I don't know what it is. Our brains will think the worst, but then that it won't always happen. It's generally somewhere closer to the end of the positive and the best thing that can happen uh and like I know with my son yep the the routine went out the window with childcare, but he's learnt so many other things he readjusts to the days that he's back at home so we've got these two schedules and it all works could I have predicted that 18 months ago no but now it's just the way that it goes and we roll with it
1: yeah that's no, I think that's a really great point. And so often, yeah, we over predict the things that don't happen at all. And we have no, we don't think that some of these really positive things can actually come out of it. And um, and I, I think it's just like it's another part of the transition of parenthood. So the transition of you know not being a parent to becoming a parent like is such a learning curve. Obviously, oh. you know having a newborn like it's just it's <laughs> like obviously you've never experienced it before in your life. Hey, so there is so much you learn. Like when I first had my child, I was like, um, so how do I even change a nappy? I've never changed a nappy in my life.
0: Yeah, I was the same. First nappy I ever changed was my son.
1: Yeah, and it feels so weird the first time you do it. Hey, like, but now, like, I I could do it with one hand with my eyes closed, Yeah. Um, you know, kids standing up, like, under the table in a cafe or something like that. Like, um, and that's the thing. Like, every every part of your parenting journey, like, you just end up doing it. Like, and and the one to work is just, it's just another transition. It feels really clunky. It feels really weird. You don't know what's going to happen. But eventually you just do it and it just becomes a part of your life
0: yeah very much so and it's it's always like learning a new skill it's you're not very good at it at the start but the more you do it and that practice over and over like changing an appy, you get become a pro at it that first time like my son was in the incubator for a couple of days so i had to sort of change it and i had no idea my son was a boy so certain parts had to be down and i had no idea but now <laughs> i say to everyone like it's a new mom of a boy i'm like make sure. Certain parts are down, yes. so it's just little things <laughs> that I have no idea. Um, but yeah. the more I do things and um, presented with different situations, you're like, "No, nope, I can do this. We can get through it." Um, and it's yeah, so yeah, it's those right. positive affirmations and that mantra, I guess, as you said.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, and that's the thing. Like with being a parent again, like the the lessons never stop coming. Like there's, there's always challenges from the moment of conception, but we, we get better at it. Like we're faced with it over and over again. So we just get better at it. And that's the thing with humans is that humans are adaptable. Like we're actually fairly resilient. Like we, we have the capacity to, to learn new skills. It's just, when we're a parent, you just faced with a a heck of a lot of new skills that you, you constantly have to learn forever.
0: and constantly managing like this child used to be this this morning is this the afternoon and managing that and definitely that resilience but I think that's also something really important for everyone to remember we are pretty resilient people at the end of the day we can Mm -hmm. get faced with a whole range of different things thrown our way but that Mm -hmm. resilience factor is also something that as a as a human being we are naturally born to to be aren't we
1: well, that's right. Exactly. Again, like that's what our fight or flight response is for. Like it's training us to be able to cope with stuff. And to remember that our kids are pretty resilient too. Like, you know, your kids are not just born like a blank slate. Like, you know, that they're they're learning and growing and they're doing that on their own. They're evolving on in their own in their own way as well. Like it's not just us that has the full responsibility. There's actually a capacity and a resilience that that our children have too inherently.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Mm.
0: Now as mums, we also try and be the perfect Instagram mother, as I sort of say in inverted commas, uh, I'm I'm saying this, and we put so much high standards on ourselves. Like as new mums, like we're expected, we instantly know how to breastfeed or we know how to change a nappy and and everything like that. And I think that's part of as well as a new mum, there's all this put on us and we're supposed to know how what we do. Uh, mm. as probably an influence of social media and this about being perfect. And also I think society as well. How can we manage these expectations, you know, as new mums um, during this parenting journey as what, as what you've been saying?
1: Yeah, well, I think certainly social media has a large role to play in this perfection status that we really constantly try and strive for, even though, most people would not think that they're striving for perfection. I, I often call parents on this, like when I see them, like you know, sort of naming up this idea of perfectionism. Some people kind of think and being a perfectionist, like isn't being perfect, is thinking that you're never good at anything. Like that's that's what it is, like and pointing out all the mistakes and and thinking that we should always be doing better and. Yeah, social media like has a, a large role to play here. And that's, you know, one of the things that can make parenting so difficult in our generation now, because we've just got this constant exposure to information and and images that we just didn't see previously, you know, ten tense all the time. Like we just had to make a decision about what was right. And and there wasn't so much questioning because there just wasn't all this excess information about it. So it makes our standards a lot higher now and makes us question ourselves a lot more than probably what parents ever have. And to some degree it's good because we get a lot more information potentially that's positive, but also there's a lot that that makes us question ourselves unnecessarily. So there are there are good and bad points, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's never, never easy, and I guess it also comes back a little bit to that identity part as well, um, about how much we, we put on ourselves and and what identity we think we need to have um, as a mum and and what mum means to us. I guess is a mental model as well. Mm, that's right, definitely. And then I think you know,
1: just our our Western model of mothers as well, like is vastly different to a lot of non-Western cultures. So, for example, in um, the Netherlands, they have a a model like where they very much support the mothers. They have a a home maternity nurse for every single mother. So every mother goes home like with a nurse that comes to visit them for eight to ten hours a day for a couple of weeks and that's just in their public health system so that 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 maternity nurse makes sure that they're breastfeeding makes sure that they have food in the cupboard cooks them a meal does the groceries for them like and it's just an expectation that there's a helper there like with the with the mum and the partner And so in their mindset, like their mindset is already there that I'm going to have help with this, that I'm not just going to have to do it on my own. And then they have a uh, maternity system where they, I think I can't remember how long that they actually get maternity leave for, but I know in Finland they have 100% of the woman's wage paid for, for 16 weeks. No, that's in, sorry, no, that's in the Netherlands. So they have... The salary paid at 100% for 16 weeks and in Finland they have 161 week paid parental leave. So, you know, their, their models of care are just so <laughs> fundamentally different oh. that mean that the woman doesn't even have to think about all of being a mother and, and in China they have a model like where the woman just um, basically like sit like is with the baby for a full 30 days um, and the expectation is that they just feed their baby and that's it and and then everyone else helps with everything else and in muslim communities like all the women just expect that they will help each other so you know we just have it the wrong way around it's like we've got this such an individual idea that we need to be doing it on our own. And, and we're the only ones that think this in our, in our Western societies. So, you know, we're very isolated. And then we spend all this time on social media and think, Oh, look what this mum's doing and this one's doing, and
0: I should be doing this. And it's just
1: not reality.
0: No, definitely not. And I love how they're those mm. countries that have got that care and they, I don't know if there's any stats around it, but they may not then experience the same postnatal issues um as what then our Western women then experience like postnatal depression and anxiety and and that questioning and that mm. doubt is because they've already got that that support tribe around them really championing for what they need to be doing and and helping them be I that that mum mm. and give out to the child.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know what the studies are either. I have tried to look at it but um I I would imagine that their incidence of postpartum depression and anxiety would be substantially reduced, yes, for that reason, because most of what I see in my clinical practice is that the the referrals that I get from doctors for some of the mums is that, oh, you know, they're presenting with postpartum depression, and I kind of think that and I see that, well, no, they're presenting with a lack of support um, or they're presenting with extreme sleep deprivation and extreme expectations like about what what their baby they people tell them that their baby should be doing like it, it's nothing to do with a label that we need to putting be putting on the mother as well that there's something wrong with the mother too like it, it's just that she has too much to cope with
0: yeah she mm. needs the support around mm. her
1: yes exactly Yep, it takes a village to
0: raise a mother. Yes, yes, very much so. <laughs> I think yes and and that village mentality is so strong in in raising a family and and having even that first-time mum. It's you need that home-cooked meal and, and people coming over and caring for you. It's it's so important um across yeah, that on all is, levels yeah. as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. But we for some reason we see ourselves as a failure if, if we're not doing those things or that, that asking for the support is that there must be something wrong when it just means that we just need support because that's what we're supposed to have and that's what, that's what mothers have had traditionally like through, through the, the generations of our lives on the planet, like we've had support like from big communities.
0: Yeah, and so it should continue. And as what we said earlier, it's a strength to accept help, not a weakness.
1: Exactly. That's right. Yeah. I like um, actually a friend that I know on Facebook and an acquaintance on Facebook had posted, uh, she'd had her fourth child and she actually asked, like she said, look, I'd, I'd love it if someone could just drop a meal around or, or some cookies or a slice or something like that. And I thought you go, you, that's amazing. Uh, well done for reaching out and for asking for that help. Like, and, and I didn't think, oh, you know, she's, She's terrible for asking, you know, or how dare she ask. So I just thought, you know, how wonderful. That's terrific. I wish more people would post those things. And I'm sure no one else, yeah, I'm sure no one else thought negatively of her either for, for asking for that help.
0: No, I'm like, she's a champion for having four kids. Wow. <laughs> no, that's also what I thought, Yeah, yeah. Now when we talk about support we also need support at home in our relationship and I know that at the moment people are saying during covid women are wearing more of the mental load at the moment how are you seeing and in your experience with your work about couples adapting to parenting and sharing the mental load both in becoming new parents and also then when the primary caregiver might be going back to work traditionally the the female but also then that readjustment of the mental load because i know there's so many experiences where there were the mother might be doing a lot more at home because she's already on maternity leave and she keeps continuing doing those chores and those tasks when she goes back to work so really she's got all these like all these factors like that do then creep into her then that is then really going on to her emotional load how what are you seeing um, this common in couples that are presented to you of about sharing and some of those are inequities um, in the mental load at home um, and how can one another support uh, each other to have better equity um, in the in the home? Yes, I mean I, I definitely see that inherent imbalance
1: between partners that often it it does just mean that the the mother takes on so much more of the, not only the practical load, but that mental load as well that we so often hear about because that's what has always been done. Because often, typically and statistically, it's usually the man that has been at work. And and sometimes, you know, very often they're taking very little time off at all. You know, there might be a week at home with the with the mother and the baby, or you know, sometimes I, I hear of situations where dads have been able to stay at home for a longer period. So they get to see more of actually what it's like to to be at home with a baby on a day-to-day basis. But I think you would when people are working, they literally just don't see it. They literally do not see what it's like to be at home with the baby, and then they come home you know, from work and then they, they've been focusing on what they've been focusing on and they might be tired from doing their work. So they kind of just don't really fully appreciate it until they've walked in the shoes of the, the stay-at-home parent. So it, it requires a lot of communication to be able to get that message across. Which is really difficult uh, because we're often not taught very good skills around communicating as couples. So, unlike probably any other time in your in your life in your partnership together, uh, will you need communication as much as what you do when you become a parent? There are just there are a lot more obstacles that come up, and there there has to be a real sharing that happens. And um, previously, before you have children, you can get away with not communicating so well because you can, you know, if you have an argument, you can just, I don't know, go go and talk to a friend or or go out for a while and go for a walk and come back and then work it out. But you can't do that when you're a parent. Like, in a, And there are so many things that can kind of come up on a regular basis. So you do have to get quite good at, at learning how to resolve conflict together and um, not waiting and I guess until the actual argument until you kind of have the, the communication, I guess. But so often, you know, if we try and communicate the problem when at the end of the day, I guess like when the partners just come home from work and mum's had it like as the baby's been crying all day and, and then the dad's upset because he needs to have his time because he's been working all day. If you try and resolve the conflict then, that's probably the worst time that you can do yes. <laughs> it. So trying to communicate things, yeah, <laughs> trying to communicate things, uh, you know, when both people are kind of at a fairly level-headed space and trying to come up with plans together about how you can manage the week or manage a transition back to work or, or manage more of that load so perhaps on a Sunday night, you know, whilst, once child's in bed and have a glass of wine together or, you know, a hot chocolate or dessert or something and making it, you know, okay, here's the calendar, like this is what's happening this week, you know, I'm doing this and, you know, Johnny's doing this on Tuesday, so what can you do? Um, trying to delegate stuff together and making it a consistent a habit each week to be able to communicate that stuff about just what's practically needing to happen and you've got to keep doing it like keep chipping away at it i guess keep on having those conversations because often like you know it's and as nice as it would be for the the man to be able to just know like what's actually happening they just don't often they just they just don't know what's actually happening um through the week and, and what it's actually like to be looking after the child so they kind not they just do need to be told sometimes um and particularly also if the regular partners have grown up in fairly traditional, because really our generation's parents most likely have been in fairly traditional roles. I mean, most of the time we're coming from histories before us where the mothers have still stayed at home and looked after the children and maybe worked part-time or things like that. But there's definitely this traditional mindset that just sits like in our history that then just gets played out again, like in, in our current life with our children. And that's what you'll see. Like you'll just see this traditional mindset that comes in because um, that's what history has kind of said, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, it, yeah, yeah, that's it. It's just that inherent imbalance that sits in our society and our culture. So we have to change that. So it's going to need a, a lot of communication and a lot of revisiting of conversations, a lot of awkward conversations, just continuing to happen to help to change the
0: habits. Yeah, and reworking mm, our our brains a bit into what is the norm um, that maybe what we thought when we grew up with our parents and our own family structures as a child of actually really reimagining those uh, for ourselves um, and and for what then role models and beliefs than we want for our own children for when they're a parent mm. as well mm,
1: exactly yeah because unconsciously or subconsciously we can just slip into those roles very easily without even kind of thinking about it so it it requires a real 180 to make sure that we're kind of turning in the opposite direction and and making sure that's not happening so that balance is is a little bit more shared between both partners
0: no, very good, very good. Um, so, just on this topic around anxiety and, uh, I guess, our identity as well, is there anything else that you'd like to to add and and tell the all everyone that's listening? Um, is there anything we've not yet covered from today? Ah, uh, I
1: just think that it's really important to to sort of see our roles as parents as trying to strive for being good enough instead of perfect. Like, I really like some of the the information that's out there around, yeah, just being pretty good. Like, it's okay to be a pretty good parent and not a perfect parent. Um, there's, a, there's actually a book that was written in 1987 called The Good Enough Parent. And I, I just really like that, that whole philosophy in that book. And there's a, I'll just read you a quick quote, actually, from the book that I like that says that good enough parents don't strive to be perfect and do not expect perfection from their children. Perfection is not in the grasp of ordinary human beings. And it kind of just gives space to that idea that, um, you know, it's OK if you make a mistake because that's what we need to teach our children. Like we need to teach our children that it's OK to make a mistake because making mistakes is part of our growth. And that's what I think is really important uh, of being a parent is to expect that you are going to make mistakes and to expect that you can learn from that and you, you can learn a lot of humility and you can teach this to your children, that you can teach to your children that, you know, you don't have to be perfect. We can pick ourselves back up again and, and just strive for being, you know, pretty good most of the time.
0: <laughs> and I still think pretty good's pretty good. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I think if you're that's reaching right. pretty good, you're doing amazing.
1: Well, exactly, that's right. But um, I mean, if th- if you looked at your whole parenting journey, I'm sure you, what what would you describe yourself as?
0: Would you describe yourself as being perfect? Or oh no, I'm I'm making it up each day. Oh, what? I literally just every day throw the balls in the air and, and see what happens. I'm like, all right, like my son's been sick a couple of weeks ago. So I was like, okay, what mood's he in today? And even this morning, I actually forgot his um, flu vac at 10 o'clock. So I had to quickly go to the doctors at 11 o'clock and do it. And I was like, every day, I think I tell myself, I'm never going to win mother of the year or anything like that. There's always something I've done, but I do probably laugh and I try not to take myself too seriously. And A couple of years ago, I had a few things happen and I then tried to tell myself, just live in the moment. Don't try and predict too many things forward or look too far back, but be present, be in the moment and then control what you can for that because there's so many other factors out of control. And I've found by living in the moment has actually really helped me um, as a parent and also just generally in life.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great strategy. Exactly. Just focus on what's what you can control in that particular moment. Like you can, you can call the doctor in that particular moment, but yeah, we can't control like what's going to happen tomorrow or, or next week or anything. And we certainly can't control what our children are doing either. Um, so yeah, just fly by the seat of our pants.
0: Yes. And look, it's, I, I enjoy it. Like my, my little man makes me laugh every day. There's something that he's done and and I sort of try and follow his lead, but Definitely parenting has brought a whole new world to my life um, and brought about different things that I never, ever expected. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's definitely, I think, made me a more grateful human being and more understanding about the world and and really made made me view the world in a very different perspective. And so I'm very grateful Mm -hmm. to be a mum for what it's actually brought me um, in so many Mm -hmm. different aspects, as I said.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really beautiful. Children are really good teachers. Like that Makes is what sense. my yoga teacher said to me, like in uh, a prenatal yoga class is, children are the best teachers.
0: Yep. Yep. We're definitely. not tempting them. Yes. Not around. <laughs> <laughs> and earlier before, Sarah, you said about managing anxiety, self-care is really important. What do you do for self-care?
1: Uh, I do a lot of yoga. And often yoga to me just looks like doing 10 minutes a day. So I have been doing this, uh, a YouTube challenge with um, Cassandra, yoga with Cassandra. So I've, I've been doing a lot of that lately. And that's been really good for me to be very consistent with the practice and just making sure that I'm taking really small pockets of, of time to look after myself. Because that's, that's what self-care has to look like for me it's lots of really small things that i do because if i wait until i you know have time to do an hour and a half yoga class like it just doesn't happen anywhere near as often as what it should um so i do that i do like five or ten minute meditations most days as well like so one of the things that i've started doing is um just after dinner, like in that in that five to seven period, like before bedtime, is when my kids can be the most challenging, as I'm sure most parents can relate to. So, what I've been doing is just taking five minutes. So I just shut the bedroom and the kids are with their dad, and I just do that to reset. Like, and I find that that's a really useful thing to to help me for that evening. Uh, I walk on the beach. I'm fortunate enough to to live on the beach, so I can I can walk regularly on the beach. So. Yeah, it's it's just sort of fairly basic kind of stuff, but that's what kind of keeps me going. And then also I really try to, even if it's once a month or once every couple of weeks, is take a good, you know, half a day to myself. And I'm trying to aim for taking a full day for myself more regularly, like where I'm just doing me stuff. Um, going to the movies or things like that or catching up with friends like that's not not parenting at all so I think having some larger pockets of time is really important where you're just you know just resting and filling your cup is really important so small pockets of self-care and then larger pockets of self-care too.
0: Mm. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for today's chat. I've definitely learned a lot and got a lot out of it. And I hope everyone listening has as well. So if they actually people want to find out more about you or getting contact with you, where can they do that?
1: Uh, they can follow me on Instagram, which is Sarah Pervy, psychologist. And I kind of fairly regularly post on that and my stories. And I also do have a mailing list that people can subscribe to from that, which is really kind of just weekly um, weekly pep talks. It's like weekly therapy, I kind of call it, just on, on any kind of particular issue, like whether it's um, yeah managing anxiety or, or self-care or some particular tip to to help kind of managing parenting or relationships, just all sorts of topics. Um, yeah. That's always a good place to connect with me and you can, and then people can go to the, my Eastern Shore psychology website and follow the keep, the keep sane and parent on category to kind of click on all the stuff there, my book and ebook and mailing list and, and stuff there and my soon to be launched online program as well, which I'm working on at the moment. So yeah, a few different ways.
0: Fantastic. Well, best of luck for the online Mm -hmm. programs. I know how valuable they are and definitely that ongoing support is always important to be that coach in the sidelines to help everyone along. So thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. As I said, um, it's been great and uh, best of luck with everything uh, coming up for you in the future. Mm -hmm.
1: Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. All the best to you as well. Like, Thanks so much
0: for having me on. No, that's all right. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Working Mama podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast catch-up. I invite you also to join the Working Mama community on Facebook and enjoy the conversation with other like-minded working mums. Please also feel free to contact me on any of the Working Mama social channels. Remember, mama is M-U-M-M-A. via Instagram or website, www.workingmama.com.au. I would appreciate you to share this podcast with friends and colleagues, especially those that are parents managing the juggle. And I would really appreciate if you had to take the time out to leave a review of the podcast. Thank you and see you next time. Have a great week.